0: Section 18 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 10 Charlemagne and His Wars. Part 2. To place textually before the reader a fragment of an old chronicle will serve better than any modern description, to show the impression of admiration and fear produced upon his contemporaries by Charlemagne, his person, and his power. At the close of this ninth century a monk of the Abbey of St. Gall in Switzerland, had collected, direct from the mouth of one of Charlemagne's warriors, Adalbert, numerous stories of his campaigns in his life. These stories are full of fabulous legends, puerile anecdotes— distorted reminiscences, and chronological errors, and they are written sometimes with a credulity and exaggeration of language which raise a smile, but they reveal the state of men's minds and fancies within the circle of Charlemagne's influence and at the sight of him. This monk gives a naive account of Charlemagne's arrival before Pavia and of the King of Lombard's disquietude at his approach. Didier had with him at that time one of Charlemagne's most famous comrades, Agier the Dane, who fills a prominent place in the romances and époises relating to chivalry of that age. Augier had quarrelled with his great chief and had taken refuge with the king of the Lombards. It is probable that his Danish origin and his relations with the king of the Danes, Gottfried, for a long time an enemy of the Franks, had something to do with his misunderstanding with Charlemagne. However that might have been, when Didier and Augur, for so the monk calls him, heard that the dread monarch was coming, they ascended a tower of vast height, whence they could watch for his arrival from afar off and from every quarter. They saw, first of all, engines of war such as must have been necessary for the armies of Darius or of Julius Caesar. "'Is not Charles,' asked Didier of Augur, "'with his great army?' But the other answered, "'No.' The Lombard, seeing afterwards an immense body of soldiery gathered from all quarters of the vast empire, said to Augur, Certs. "'Charles advanceth in triumph in the midst of this throng.' "'No, not yet. He will not appear so soon,' was the answer. "'What should we do, then?' rejoined Didier, who begun to be perturbed. "'Should he come accompanied by a larger band of warriors?' "'You will see what he is when he comes,' replied Augur. "'But as to what will become of us I know nothing.' As they were thus parleying appeared the body of guards that knew no repose, and at this sight the Lombard, overcome with dread, cried, "'This time tis surely Charles.' "'No,' answered Augur. "'not yet.' In their wake came the bishops, the abbots, the ordinaries of the chapels royal, and the counts, and then Didier, no longer able to bear the light of day or to face death, cried out with groans, "'Let us descend and hide ourselves in the bowels of the earth, far from the face and the fury of so terrible a foe.' Trembling the while, Augur, who knew by experience what were the power and might of Charles, and who had learned the lesson by a long constitute in better days, said, "'When ye shall behold the crops shaking for fear in the fields, and the gloomy Po and the Ticino overflowing the walls of the city with their waves blackened with steel, iron, then may ye think that Charles is coming.' He had not ended these words when there began to be seen in the west, as it were, a black cloud, raised by the northwest wind, or by Boreas, which turned the brightest day into awful shadows.' but as the emperor drew nearer and nearer, the gleam of arms caused to shine on the people shut up within the city, a day more gloomy than any kind of night. And then appeared Charles himself, that man of steel, with his head encased in a helmet of steel, his hands garnished with gauntlets of steel, his heart of steel, and his shoulders of marble, protected by a cuirass of steel, and his left hand armed with a lance of steel which he held aloft in the air, for as to his right hand he kept that continually on the hilt of his invincible sword. The outside of his thighs, which the rest, for their greater ease in mounting a horseback, were wont to leave unshackled, even by straps, he wore encircled by plates of steel. What shall I say concerning his boots? All the army were wont to have them invariably of steel. On his buckler there was naught to be seen but of steel. His horse was of the colour and the strength of steel. All those who went before the monarch— all those who marched at his side, all those who followed after, even the whole mass of the army, had armour of the like sort, so far as the means of each permitted. The fields and the highways were covered with steel, the points of steel reflected the rays of the sun, and this steel, so hard, was borne by a people with hearts still harder. The flash of steel spread terror throughout the streets of the city. What steel? Alack, what steel? Such were the bewildered cries the citizens raised the firmness of manhood and of youth gave way at sight of the steel, and the steel paralyzed the wisdom of greybeards. That which I, poor tale-teller, mumbling and toothless, have attempted to depict in a long description, Auger perceived at one rapid glance, and said to Didier, Here is what you have so anxiously sought. And whilst uttering these words he fell down almost lifeless. The monk of St. Gall does King Didier and his people wrong. They showed more firmness and valor than he ascribes to them, they resisted Charlemagne obstinately, and repulsed his first assault so well that he changed the siege into an investment and settled down before Pavia, as if making up his mind for a long operation. His camp became a town, he sent for Queen Hildegard and her court, and he had a chapel built, where he celebrated the festival of Christmas. But on the arrival of spring, close upon the festival of Easter, 777, wearied with the duration of the investment, he left to his lieutenants the duty of keeping it up and while attended by a numerous and brilliant following, set off for Rome, whither the Pope was urgently pressing him to come. On Holy Saturday, April 1st, 777, Charlemagne found, at three miles from Rome, the magistrates and the banner of the city, sent forward by the Pope to meet him. At one mile all the principal bodies and the pupils of the schools carrying palm branches and singing hymns, and at the gate of the city the cross, which was never taken out save for exarchs and patricians. At the side of the cross Charlemagne dismounted, entered Rome on foot, ascended the steps of the ancient Basilica of St. Peter, repeated at each step a sign of respectful piety, and was received at the top by the Pope himself. All around him and in the streets a chant was sung, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. At his entry and during his sojourn at Rome, Charlemagne gave the most striking proofs of Christian faith and respect for the head of the Church. According to the custom of pilgrims he visited all the basilicas, and in that of St. Maria Maggiore he performed his solemn devotions. Then, passing to temporal matters, he caused to be brought and read over, in his private conferences with the Pope, the deed of territorial gift made by his father Pepin to Stephen the Second, and with his own lips dictated the confirmation of it, adding thereto a new gift of certain territories which he was in course of wresting by conquest from the Lombards. Pope Adrian, on his side, rendered to him, with a mixture of affection and dignity, all the honours and all the services which could at one and the same time satisfy and exalt the king and the priest, the protector and the protected. He presented to Charlemagne a book containing a collection of the canons written by the pontiffs from the origin of the church, and he put at the beginning of the book, which was dedicated to Charlemagne, an address in forty-five irregular verses, written with his own hand, which then formed an anagram. Pope Adrian to his most excellent son Charlemagne, king. Domino, excellentissimo, filio, carolo, magno, regi, ipandranius, papa. At the same time he encouraged him to push his victory to the utmost and make himself king of the Lombards, advising him, however, not to incorporate his conquest with the Frankish dominions, as it would wound the pride of the conquered people to be thus absorbed by the conquerors, and to take merely the title of King of the Franks and Lombards. Charlemagne appreciated and accepted this wise advice, for he could preserve proper limits in his ambition and in the hour of victory. Three years afterwards he even did more than Pope Adrian had advised. In 777 Queen Hildegard bore him a son, Pepin, whom in 781 Charlemagne had baptized and anointed King of Italy at Rome by the Pope thus separating not only the two titles but also the two kingdoms and restoring to the lombards a national existence feeling quite sure that so long as he lived the unity of his different dominions would not be imperilled having thus regulated at rome his own affairs and those of the church he returned to his camp took pavia received the submission of all the lombard dukes and counts save one only Erigesius, duke of beneventum and entered france again taking with him as prisoner king didier whom he banished to a monastery first at liege and then at Corbie, where the dethroned lombard say the chroniclers ended his days in saintly fashion the prompt success of this war in italy undertaken at the appeal of the head of the church this first sojourn of charlemagne at rome the spectacles he had witnessed and the homage he had received exercised over him his plans and his deeds a powerful influence this rough frankish warrior chief of a people who were beginning to make a brilliant appearance upon the stage of the world, and issue himself of a new line, had a taste for what was grand, splendid, ancient, and consecrated by time and public respect. He understood and estimated at its full worth the moral force and importance of such allies. He departed from Rome in 774, more determined than ever to subdue Saxony, to the advantage of the Church as well as of his own power, and to promote, in the South as in the North, the triumph of the Frankish-Christian dominion. Three years afterwards, in 777, he had convoked at Paderborn, in Westphalia, that general assembly of his different peoples at which Whittakin did not attend, and which was destined to bring upon the Saxons a more and more obstinate war. The Saracen, Ibn al-Arabi, says Eginhard, came to this town to present himself before the king. He had arrived from Spain, together with other Saracens in his train, to surrender to the king of the Franks himself, and all the towns which the king of the Saracens had confided to his keeping. For a long time past the Christians of the West had given the Muslims, Arab or other, the name of Saracens. Ibn al-Arabi was governor of Saragossa, and one of the Spanish-Arab chieftains in league against ad rahman the last offshoot of the Omiyid Caliphs, who, with the assistance of the Berbers, had seized the government of Spain. Amidst the troubles of his country and his nation, Ibn al-Arabi summoned to his aid, against Abdul Rahman, the Franks and Christians, just as, but lately, Marontius, Duke of Arles, had summoned to Provence, against Charles Martel, the Arabs and the Muslims. Charlemagne accepted the summons with alacrity. With the coming of spring in the following year, 778, and with the full assent of his chief warriors, he began his march towards the Pyrenees, crossed the Loire, and halted at Cassinue, at the confluence of the Lot and the Garonne, to celebrate there the festival of Easter, and to make preparations for his expedition thence. As he had but lately done for his campaign in Italy against the Lombards, he divided his forces into two armies, one composed of Austrasians, Neustrians, Burgundians, and diverse German contingents, and commanded by Charlemagne in person, was to enter Spain by the valley of Ronskballs, in the Western Pyrenees and make for Pamplona, the other, consisting of Provençals, Septimanians, Lombards, and other populations of the south, under the command of Duke Bernard, who had already distinguished himself in Italy, had orders to penetrate into Spain by the Eastern Pyrenees, to receive on the march the submission of Girona and Barcelona, and not to halt till they were before Saragossa, where the two armies were to form a junction and which ibn al-Arabi had promised to give up to the king of the Franks. According to this plan, Charlemagne had to traverse the territories of Aquitaine and Vasconia, domains of duke Lupus the Second, son of duke Wafre, so long the foe of Pepin the Short, a Merovingian by descent, and in all these qualities little disposed to favor Charlemagne. However, the march was accomplished without difficulty. The king of the Franks treated his powerful vassal well, and Duke Lupus swore to him afresh, or for the first time, says M. Fariel, submission and fidelity, but the event soon proved that it was not without umbrage, or without all the feelings of a true son of Wafre, that he saw the Franks and the son of Pepin so close to him. The aggressive campaign was an easy and a brilliant one. Charles, with his army, entered Spain by the valley of ronsk Valls without encountering any obstacle. On his arrival before Pamplona, the Arab governor surrendered the place to him, and Charlemagne pushed forward vigorously to Saragossa. But there fortune changed. The presence of foreigners and Christians on the soil of Spain caused a suspension of interior quarrels amongst the Arabs, who rose en masse at all points to succor Saragossa. The besieged defended themselves with obstinacy. There was more scarcity of provisions amongst the besiegers than inside the place. Sickness broke out amongst them— they were incessantly harassed from without, and rumours of a fresh rising amongst the Saxons reached Charlemagne. The Arabs demanded negotiation. To decide the king of the Franks upon an abandonment of the siege, they offered him an immense quantity of gold, say the chroniclers, hostages, and promises of homage and fidelity. Appearances had been saved, Charlemagne could say, and even perhaps believe, that he had pushed his conquest as far as the Ebro. He decided on retreat, and all the army was set in motion to recross the Pyrenees. On arriving before Pamplona, Charlemagne had its walls completely raised to the ground, in order that, as he said, the city might not be able to revolt. The troops entered those same passes of Roncesvalles which they had traversed without obstacle a few weeks before, and the advance guard and the main body of the army were already clear of them. The account of what happened shall be given in the words of Egenhard, the only contemporary historian whose account— free from all exaggeration, can be considered authentic. The king, he says, brought back his army without experiencing any loss, save that, at the summit of the Pyrenees, he suffered somewhat from the perfidy of the Vascones, Basques. Whilst the army of the Franks, embarrassed in a narrow defile, was forced by the nature of the ground to advance in one long, close line, the Basques, who were in ambush on the crest of the mountain, for the thickness of the forest with which these parts are covered is favourable to Ambuscade, descend and fall suddenly on the baggage-train and on the troops of the rear-guard, whose duty it was to cover all in their front, and precipitate them to the bottom of the valley. There took place a fight in which the Franks were killed to a man. The Basques, after having plundered the baggage-train, profited by the night, which had come on to disperse rapidly— They owed all their success in this engagement to the lightness of their equipment and to the nature of the spot where the action took place. The Franks, on the contrary, being heavily armed and in an unfavourable position, struggled against too many disadvantages. Egedhard, master of the household of the king, Anselm, count of the palace, and Roland, prefect of the marches of Brittany, fell in this engagement. There were no means, at the time, of taking revenge for this cheek, for after their sudden attack the enemy dispersed to such good purpose that there was no gaining any trace of the direction in which they should be sought for. History says no more, but in the poetry of the people there is a longer and more faithful memory than in the court of kings. The disaster of Roncesvalles and the heroism of the warriors who perished there became, in France, the object of popular sympathy and the favourite topic for the exercise of the popular fancy. The Song of Roland, a real Homeric poem in its great beauty, and yet rude and simple as became its national character, bears witness to the prolonged importance attained in Europe by this incident in the history of Charlemagne. Three centuries later the comrades of William the Conqueror, marching to battle at Hastings for the possession of England, struck up the Song of Roland, to prepare themselves for victory or death, says M. Vitel in his vivid estimate and able translation of this poetical monument of the manners and first impulses towards chivalry of the Middle Ages. There is no determining how far history must be made to participate in these reminiscences of national feeling. But, assuredly, the figures of Roland and Oliver, and Archbishop Turpin, and the pious, unsophisticated, and tender character of their heroism, are not pure fables invented by the fancy of a poet, or the credulity of a monk. If the accuracy of historical narratives must not be looked for in them, their moral truth must be recognized in their portrayal of a people and an age. The political genius of Charlemagne comprehended more fully than would be imagined, from his panegyrist's brief and dry account, all the gravity of the affair of Ronscalls. Not only did he take immediate vengeance by hanging Duke Lupus of Aquitaine, whose treason had brought down this mishap, and by reducing his two sons, Aderic and Sancho, to a more feeble and precarious condition— but he resolved to treat Aquitaine as he had but lately treated Italy, that is to say, to make of it, according to the correct definition of M. Ferriel, a special kingdom, an integral portion indeed of the Frankish empire, but with an especial designation, which was that of resisting the invasions of the Andalusian Arabs, and confining them as much as possible to the soil of the peninsula. This was in some sort giving back to the country its primary task as an independent duchy, and it was the most natural and most certain way of making the Aquitanians useful subjects by giving play to their national vanity, to their pretensions of forming a separate people, and to their hopes of once more becoming, sooner or later, an independent nation. Queen Hildegard, during her husband's sojourn at Cassanul in 778, had borne him a son, whom he called Louis, and who was afterwards Louis the debonair. Charlemagne, summoned a second time to Rome, in 781, by the quarrels of Pope Adrian I, with the imperial court of Constantinople, brought with him his two sons, Pepin, aged only four years, and Louis only three years, and had them anointed by the Pope, the former king of Italy, and the latter king of Aquitaine. On returning from Rome to Austrasia, Charlemagne sent Louis at once to take possession of his kingdom. From the banks of the Meuse to Orléans the little prince was carried in his cradle, but once on the Loire, This manner of travelling beseemed him no longer. His conductors would that his entry into his dominions should have a manly and warrior-like appearance. They clad him in arms proportioned to his height and age, they put him and held him on horseback, and it was in such guise that he entered Aquitaine. He came thither accompanied by the officers who were to form his council of guardians, men chosen by Charlemagne with care, amongst the Frankish leudes. Distinguished not only for bravery and firmness, but also for adroitness, and such as they should be to be neither deceived nor seared by the cunning, fickle, and turbulent populations with whom they would have to deal. From this period to the death of Charlemagne, and by his sovereign influence, though all the while under his son's name, the government of Aquitaine was a series of continued efforts to hurl back the Arabs of Spain beyond the ebro, to extend to that river the dominion of the Franks, to divert to that end the forces as well as the feelings of the populations of southern Gaul, and thus to pursue in the south as in the north, against the Arabs as well as against the Saxons and Huns, the grand design of Charlemagne, which was the repression of foreign invaders, and the triumph of Christian France over Asiatic paganism and Islamism. Although continually obliged to watch, and often still to fight, Charlemagne might well believe that he had nearly gained his end, He had everywhere greatly extended the frontiers of the Frankish dominions and subjugated the populations comprised in his conquests. He had proved that his new frontiers would be vigorously defended against new invasions or dangerous neighbours. He had pursued the Huns and the Saxons to the confines of the Empire of the East, and the Saracens to the islands of Corsica and Sardinia. The centre of the dominion was no longer in ancient Gaul. He had transferred it to a point not far from the Rhine, in the midst and within reach of the Germanic populations, at the town of Aix-la-Chapelle, which he had founded, and which was his favourite residence. But the principal parts of the gallo Frankish kingdom, Austrasia, Neustria, and Burgundy, were effectually welded in one single mass. What he had done with southern Gaul has but just been pointed out, how he had both separated it from his own kingdom, and still retained it under his control." Two expeditions into Amorica, without taking entirely from the Britons their independence, had taught them real deference, and the great warrior Roland, installed as count upon their frontier, warned them of the peril any rising would encounter. The moral influence of Charlemagne was on a par with his material power. He had everywhere protected the missionaries of Christianity, he had twice entered Rome, also in the character of protector, and he could count on the faithful support of the Pope— at least as much as the Pope could count on him. He had received embassies and presents from the sovereigns of the East, Christian and Muslim, from the emperors at Constantinople and the caliphs at Baghdad. Everywhere, in Europe, in Africa, and in Asia, he was feared and respected by kings and people. Such, at the close of the eighth century, were, so far as he was concerned, the results of his wars, of the superior capacity he had displayed, and of the successes which he had won and kept. In 799 he received, at Aix-la-Chapelle, news of serious disturbances which had broken out at Rome, that Pope Leo the Third had been attacked by conspirators, who, after pulling out, it was said, his eyes and his tongue, had shut him up in the monastery of St. Erasmus, whence he had with great difficulty escaped, and that he had taken refuge with Winigisius, Duke of Spoleto, announcing his intention of repairing thence to the Frankish king. Léo was already known to Charlemagne. At his accession to the pontificate, in 795, he had sent to him, as to the patrician and defender of Rome, the keys of the prison of St. Peter, and the banner of the city. Charlemagne showed a disposition to receive him with equal kindness and respect. The Pope arrived, in fact, at Paderborn, passed some days there, according to Eginhard, and returned to Rome on the 30th of November, 799, at ease regarding his future, but without knowledge on the part of any one of what had been settled between the King of the Franks and him. Charlemagne remained all the winter at Aix-la-Chapelle, spent the first months of the year 800 on affairs connected with western France at Rouen, Tours, Orléans, and Paris, and returning to Mayence in the month of August, then, for the first time, announced to the General Assembly of Franks his design of making a journey to Italy, He repaired thither, in fact, and arrived on the 23rd of November, 800, at the gates of Rome. The Pope received him there as he was dismounting, and then the next day, standing on the steps of the Basilica of St. Peter, and amidst general hallelujahs, he introduced the King into the sanctuary of the blessed Apostle, glorifying and thanking the Lord for this happy event. Some days were spent in examining into the grievances which had been set down to the Pope's account, and in receiving two monks arrived from Jerusalem to present to the king, with the patriarch's blessing, the keys of the Holy Sepulchre and Cavalry, as well as the sacred standard. Lastly, on the 25th of December, 800, the day of the Nativity of our Lord, says Eginhard, the king came into the Basilica of the Blessed St. Peter, Apostle, to attend the celebration of Mass. At the moment when, in his place before the altar, he was bowing down to pray, Pope Leo placed on his head a crown, and all the Roman people shouted, Long life and victory to Charles Augustus, crowned by God, the great and pacific emperor of the Romans. After this proclamation the pontiff prostrated himself before him and paid him adoration, according to the custom established in the days of the old emperors, and thenceforward Charles, giving up the title of patrician, bore that of emperor and Augustus. Eginard adds, in his life of Charlemagne, the king at first testified great aversion for this dignity, for he declared that, notwithstanding the importance of the festival, he would not on that day have entered the church, if he could have foreseen the intentions of the sovereign pontiff. However, this event excited the jealousy of the Roman emperors of Constantinople, who showed great vexation at it. But Charles met their bad graces with nothing but great patience, and thanks to this magnanimity, which raised him so far above them, he managed, by sending to them frequent embassies, and giving them in his letters the name of brother, to triumph over their conceit no one probably believed in the ninth century and no one assuredly will nowadays believe that charlemagne was innocent beforehand of what took place on the twenty fifth of december eight hundred in the basilica of st peter it is doubtful also if he were seriously concerned about the ill temper of the emperors of the east he had wit enough to understand the value which always remains attached to old traditions and he might have taken some pains to secure their countenance to this title of emperor but all his contemporaries believed, and he also undoubtedly believed, that he had on that day really won and set up again the roman empire. End of chapter ten.